this week on the Backtable podcast. Interesting model. The world is changing, right? We see tremendous amount of change in in all. Look, just look around in the past several years, COVID and all the implications. Advice to other practices, new docs. Just take a look at different options out there and see what the pros and cons are. Keep your eyes open, do your diligence, and make good decisions. ENT is the best specialty in medicine, and we have the best people. And I, I think that there's a lot of different options. And for the young people, focus on taking good care of your patients. And you'll make more money than you deserve, no matter what model you go into. Hey, everyone. Really exciting news. Our listeners asked and we have answered. We now have CME available. You can get AMA Category 1 CME for listening to Backtable and then filling out a reflection. You can find the CME links on the episode pages at backtable.com, or you can also find the CME links in the show notes. It's a small cost for the credit, much less than you would spend at a conference, and it helps support the show. Powered by CMEFI, using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. You can do this in just a few minutes. If you're already listening to Backtable, might as well get a CME credit for it. Again, this helps support the show and allows us to keep bringing you great content. Now on with the episode. This is Bradley Block, host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast, part of the Financial Residency Network, and partner at ENT and Allergy Associates, and I'm taking over the Backtable ENT podcast for an episode. Private equity was recently a conversation topic at ENT Connect, that academy chat room we have, so I invited Drew Lacandro and Bill Blythe, who had given concise, eloquent arguments for and against selling to private equity, onto this show to discuss their reasoning. It made for a really informative conversation. Now, at ENT and Allergy Associates, we had considered selling to private equity, but I wasn't involved in those conversations and signed an NDA in blood and the tears of my children, so I couldn't speak to our experience, but I learned a lot from Drew and Bill. Now, Bill's name might sound familiar because he's really involved in the academy. Bill Blythe is a general otolaryngologist practicing at East Alabama Ear, Nose, and Throat in Auburn, Opelika, Alabama, and he's been in the same practice with the same partners since finishing residency in 1997. He was the past chief of staff at East Alabama Health, where he served in almost every medical staff leadership position for the past 24 years. He served as president of the Alabama Society of Otolaryngology for 10 years and continued in his role as annual meeting coordinator. He continues to serve on multiple committees for the academy, including CPT, AMPC, Regent Executive Committee, and is currently the senior director for private practice, board of directors, and BOD Executive Committee. Drew Lacandro is a practicing general otolaryngologist with Northwest ENT and Allergy, Marietta, Georgia. He joined a group practice there after residency in Albany, New York, and has practiced there since. He's president of his six-physician group with five office locations and an ASC. He served as chairman of the Department of Surgery at Wellstar Kennestone Hospital, as well as chair of the Hospital Quality Assurance Committee for several years. He's also been a member of the American Academy of Otolaryngology Outcome Research and Evidence-Based Medicine Committees. Dr. Drew Lacandro and Dr. William Blight, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for this opportunity and talk about a timely topic that our ENT colleagues need to know about. So, Drew, let's start with you because you moved forward with the private equity deal. So, I'd like to give us a summary of why you decided to approach them or when they approached you, why you were receptive. What were your reasons for considering it? And also, what were your trepidations going into it? And why did you? ultimately decide to consummate the deal? Sure. That's a long question, but I'll try to address it briefly and succinctly. 
So I'm in my early 60s. I'm a president of actually our group of now six docs. We're in Metro Atlanta. I moved here from New Jersey in 1989, joined the group at that time. And then 1998, our group at that time joined with a practice management company called Atlanta ENT. And that was a new concept at that time. There were some other venture capital companies that were out. They were merging physician groups and multi-specialty groups. And the model was different. We thought it made sense. We joined amongst many other docs in the Atlanta area up to 30 at one point. And it didn't work out. I mean, it seemed like on paper it worked. It seemed logical. It was an acquisition. We were all going to work together and build practices. But due to the structure and the way the incentives were aligned, it didn't really work that well for physicians. So that model kind of disintegrated shortly thereafter. And it was quiet for many, many years. So we actually regrouped and I formed a group of two, then three physicians. We're up to six at this point. A couple of years ago, now we joined our partner two and a half years ago, but just prior to that, things started to get very complex. We running a business in medicine is complicated these days. It's time consuming, it's demanding, there's risk. And we found that the cost kept escalating. So our overhead kept increasing over and over. And we're in the competitive market. We have multiple offices. We've got a surgery center. We've got some ancillary services. All those are running, but it kind of gets burdensome and you can't just pass it off to a third party or to your practice administrator. As physicians and owners, we need to be involved. So got to the point where we started to really look for other options. I heard through in my county medical society that private equity was back into the market, acquiring different specialties, for example, dermatology, orthopedics and urology and ophthalmology. So we contacted one of the firms that had organized a group of ophthalmologists in Atlanta and had some long discussions and we decided to go ahead and merge with a partnership with a private equity firm. So we've done that. It's been two and a half years and the world's been a very positive experience and we can get into that in a little bit. As you were going through the deal with them, what were you hesitant about? Overhead. Was that overhead being passed on to the physicians? And in this model, it's not. We were hesitant certainly about experience and dedication and the integrity of the partner and also the incentives of the partner. And so we looked at that carefully. We met with the private equity firm, which happens to be based in Chicago. We liked what they had to present. They have tremendous amount of experience in the microcap health field. Microcap means medical businesses anywhere from two to $10 million in gross revenue. And they've had multiple models that they've successfully acquired and even brought to exit in the marketplace. So strong track record, good people. We liked the model that was presented. It was very different from that model back in the late 90s. And that's why we chose to move forward. Bill, can you tell us about your experience? Because as it turns out, it was the same PE firm that approached you, correct? Yes. And my group has actually spoken to three different firms, but I am familiar with Drew's group and um, that PE group and had some lengthy discussions and negotiations with them. I apologize. I don't want you to necessarily have to disclose what was going on with those groups. But, you know, if you've been approached by three different groups, then let's go through this similar question. What would be the reasons why you have considered them? And ultimately, what were the reasons why you decided not to? So they've approached us. So we haven't sought it out yet. Although I've been to plenty of meetings and I've talked to people and, you know, we read and respond to emails. 
I'm just one of those guys. I'm always, you know, whatever you're selling, if you send me an email, I'm going to click on it. I'm going to see if I'm interested in it and I may click through it. But you have to remember that true private practice, independent practices are, are not the majority of our specialty anymore. And if you look at the entities that know, for example, physical, that the group that sells balance systems to offices, you know, they'll tell you that only about a third of practices and otolaryngologists in the country right now are in true private practices. The supply is becoming shorter and shorter. We're a true independent practice. And we've had several people that have talked to us. We've gone further down the road with some groups and the others on those discussions. But, you know, I'm always interested and I remain interested to this day of hearing what people have to say. We've been approached by our local hospital to purchase our group on several occasions. We have been approached by a local university to join with the university in their network. You know, so people are always in these discussions. And I think that that is a very common part of private practice. You know, we're in a discussion right now with two different ACOs and with the CIN. People are always looking to expand their networks. And all in private equity is just the sort of contemporary iteration of that. I mean, we're very interested and I remain interested. But not interested enough to consummate a deal. And I want to be very clear about this. I'm never going to say never. There's a lot of, you know, medicine changed dramatically just in the 24 years that I've been in practice. There's a lot of pressures, particularly on a small group. Now, you got to remember, Drew and I practice in very different contexts. I'm in a draw for my practice is about 350,000 people. And where, I don't know how I many is in Metro Atlanta, Drew, what is it, 8 million? And there's a lot of people there. We have no competition. And we have a single hospital that provides care for seven counties surrounding us. And so we have a single institution. We have no competition. We're the only ENT group in town. And it's a very different context than the world that Drew practices in. Everything is, in my opinion, and should be contextual. And in Drew's context, this might have been the most sensible solution or option at the time that they made the choice. For us right now, it's just not selling our practice to any entity, whether that's a hospital, whether that's a system, or whether that's private equity has not been advantageous enough for us to make that decision. One of the questions that I wanted to talk about for the issues is the potential existential threat to private practice. Is this way of practicing being threatened by the coalescing of larger groups, larger practices, multi-specialty groups, such that we'd be worried about our referrals drying up. So for you, Bill, that would be the hospital hiring their own ENTs, right? They hire their own ENTs and you're going to lose a big referral source there. Does that concern you? Does that give you maybe a drive towards selling either to the hospital or to private equity as a hedge against changes in the future? I'll take this one first. I would be delighted to go into another two-hour podcast for this very discussion at another time that doesn't even mention private equity. So I want to go ahead and say this. I don't think that private equity in and of itself is an existential threat to private practice or general laryngology, but I do have severe concerns and a lot of heartache and a lot of attention focused on what I do think is an existential threat to both general laryngologists and to private practice. And personally, I think that they're both worth saving. I think that, you know, most trainees are choosing to do fellowship training. Most people are choosing to go into an employment model of some type, whether that's institutional employment, academic medicine, 
hospital employment or larger group employment. And I hate to see it. I, I just hate to see it. I'm a staunch advocate of independent practice. I'm a staunch advocate of, of general laryngology. I think that our, I think the people that make it into ENT and that we have trained in the past half century are some of the brightest, most wonderful people in all of medicine. And I like to see us uh, doing so. So that's just my side. I'm highly concerned about the existence of private practice in general and laryngology. There's very few practices like mine left where we're completely independent of all facilities. We don't have any financial relationship with any hospitals, with any institution. We have three general otolaryngologists and we do everything from, we, do, we don't do acoustics, we don't do free flaps. But other than that, we do everything at ENT. And I think we do it reasonably well, but that's just very rare this day and time. So I think that there are lots of existential threats. I think PE is one of them. I don't think it's necessarily a bad one of them. It's just, it's no worse or no better than academics or hospital. I didn't really mean PE itself as being the existential threat, but PE as being a hedge against that as existential threat. So a financial hedge. So you see the possibility of your hospital hiring other otolaryngologists so that your referrals dry up. And in order to protect yourself and your family financially, you will therefore sell to private equity to make sure that you are still financially stable. Well, let me just comment on private equity. I mean, their goal is to invest and build. Their goal is to make us better. It's to give us professional support. Yes, it's acquisition, bring other practices in within the bigger umbrella, but they are very intent on maintaining your practice identity that we know that's vitally important. It's how we get referrals, how we're known, how our phone number is. It doesn't help if there's another group on the other side of Atlanta and all of a sudden we become some new name that nobody knows about. So they know to maintain the integrity and the strength. And frankly, I think it increases the legacy and the strength of that practice, because now you've got a incredibly strong financial partner that's going to invest a lot of capital, a lot of expertise to support and build that practice. But you're right. I personally see it. There was a threat to continue where I'm in a very competitive market, unlike Bill, surrounded by big hospital systems that employ multiple otolaryngologists. I mean, when I first started, I was the busiest doc in my local hospital. Now they have seven full-time employed ENT doctors and Lord knows how many advanced practitioners. So that's one of the reasons why we had to be aggressive and bring in other offices in the surrounding region so we could buffer our referral base against a monopoly. So hedging with a strong partner, I think, increases, if you will, the legacy role of a private practice and also helps build the young doc. So a young doc comes in and he knows that he's got strong support and that carries through to the future because that's what private equity, they're looking for the future. There are some of that model is to look at that second exit, but many private equity firms actually retain ownership within the business because they know that medical practices do well in the long term. So you talk about the legacy. What would you tell a resident is coming to interview you to be hired by the practice? Mm -hmm. And they ask you, what's the difference between what it was like practicing before the sale and what it's like practicing after the sale? What would you tell them? Our day-to-day -day practice hasn't changed one bit. If anything, we have some more support. Yes, I have more ancillary support, more IT support. Now when the computer breaks, I have three people that are instantly on top of it. So yeah, but as far as 
day-to-day running the practice, seeing our patients, going to the OR, doing rounds, consults. All our services in the office have not changed one bit. My schedule hasn't altered at all. In fact, if anything, we're busier. Why? Because they pour a lot of money into marketing. So now we have more finances dedicated to internet marketing. We now have a practice liaison, which we never had before. So there's a full-time person whose job is just to go around in the greater Northwest Atlanta suburbs, and even in the city, knock on referral doors, urgent care centers, primary care centers. Here's some doc's cards. You need to get an ENT doc. We can get them in quickly. If anything, it's been a positive experience, as I mentioned for us. Without getting into specifics, is there any difference in compensation for a new hire before versus after? No, the salaries are competitive. They're the same. I mean, if anything, maybe a little bit better that a new ENT guy could get in a hospital or certainly in a private practice. Probably the biggest difference is the fact that by joining a group like ours, any doc has the opportunity for equity. That is when it becomes time to become partner rather than writing a check for me or any other senior doc and who knows what that price is and what you'll get out of it in the end when I retire. Now the the equity firms usually do a shared opportunity for equity that is shares within this within the firm itself. And that investment, my track record, is way better than you're going to get by just buying into a a general practice. Yeah, that's the the second bite that they refer to when they eventually sell to a larger private equity firm or or a healthcare system. Yeah, usually usually mid-cap, as I mentioned. The model starts as a micro-cap, and then they go up to mid-cap, and then maybe even larger after that. So aside from financial gain, Right, because this is what, at least when they were approaching us, they were saying you're going to get this money up. Front. Some of it you're going to get as cash. Some of it you're going to get as an investment in the practice itself, so that when we grow your practice and eventually sell it to a larger private equity firm, you're going to make a multiple on this other investment. So there's this potential for financial gain there. At least the way of describing it to us was they were also going to take some of that income, but in some instances as a management fee. But in some instances, they're able to improve your income through economies of scale and through better contracts with insurers. So by growing the groups, you've got these advantages. So aside from financial gain, are there other issues contributing to quality of life that we need to consider when we're selling, right? Drew, we'll start with you. What were the factors unrelated to compensation and you know the second bite that you were considering? As I mentioned, complexities of running a business. I mean, in 2021, every year we get more regulatory rules, more complicated contracts to negotiate, more, you name it from top to bottom, IT to marketing to competition. So, you know, credentialing, the compliance issues. So we would have meetings and I would have to go to meetings after work on Monday evenings or noon meetings or 7 a.m. meetings with my administrator, my partners with vendors, with no negotiating equipment leases, loans for leases for equipment. So all that is no longer my responsibility. Now, yes, I oversee, I get a lot of questions. Is this the right thing to do? But the beauty is I have a lot more free time now and I don't have to deal with a lot of this. And the model that we're in now, overhead is not passed on to any of the physician. Our compensation model is frankly, it's a percentage of, of revenue. So it doesn't matter how many staff the company adds or how much overhead they add, if you will. And that to me was the huge difference from the group that we were involved with many years ago. 
But Bill, you're still running your practice. So the question is, are physicians more satisfied when we own the practice, which may be more fulfilling, but have more work running it versus just being able to put our heads down, see our patients and go home? Yeah, you know, I really think that somebody really needs to do a good thoughtful study on that because the honest answer is, I don't know. My gut experience and my thought on it, and from what I think I've read, is that people that own their own practices are generally have less burnout and are generally happier and have higher compensation. I may be wrong about that, but I think I'm pretty sure if you look at the data on burnout and all that it's actually lower if you own your own practice. And I think that's true for anything. I think the one thing that Drew said that really got my attention, he said, I have more free time. I mean, who's not interested in more free time? And your time is your most valuable asset once you cross over 50, especially, you know, time is precious. So I think everybody's interested in that. And that certainly is an intriguing part of it. You know, we have a relatively small practice. We have six providers, three doctors, three APPs, four audiologists, 32 employees total. So we're a much smaller group than certainly your group is, Brad, and Drew's as well. But, you know, I don't find running the business to be that arduous. I like having the control of it. Speaking at the academy meeting, I think a lot of people have this idea of a small private practice like mine is some guy in a lab coat sitting over a whale oil lamp, balancing the books with a quill and throwing shillings to the employees. We have a full-time, again, we have a full-time practice manager that's out of Gainesville, Florida, doctor's management. They manage thousands of doctors. They're very good at it. They oversee our books. Payroll is very, very easy and inexpensive to outsource. We have the same EHRs that big groups do. You know, so I don't find managing the practice to be that arduous. Yeah, you have to answer a bunch of emails and you have to, you know, keep your attention on it, but nobody watches your money like you do. I don't find it to be that arduous and I actually find it to be quite satisfying. Drew, what was your experience when you were running the practice of what you can outsource and should outsource and what you should keep to yourself? what you should be managing? Well, sure. You can outsource almost any function of the medical practice. There's more than enough companies willing to take a fee for doing that. One of our biggest issues was revenue cycle management. And really, are we collecting? Are we billing properly? Are we coding properly? Part of it was the EMR system. We are in a network with one of the hospital systems. We're not owned by any ways, but there we have to use this EMR in the accounting system. And it's not the easiest system to get data out. So we always were struggling and, you know, we're always, should we hire more staff? Should we not hire more staff? And I can tell you once we merged, we had, let's see, I think we had four staff that were involved in a revenue cycle. When we joined the private equity group, they bumped that staff up to seven and we saw a significant increase in our collections. Nothing else changed, same amount of work. We were up at about an 18% increase in net collections. That's just by having more staff, more people. And we weren't sure we weren't willing to pay for that. So, you know, what you don't know, you don't know sometimes, but that was probably the biggest change that we were able to see. And that's reproducible and easily, you know, we could prove that. Bill, for yourself, aside from what you already mentioned, what do you think is critical for practices to outsource? What should they hold on to and manage themselves? I think you do blocking and tackling in-house. I mean, you you need somebody in-house that reviews every remit that goes out and every EOB that comes in. You need your basic revenue cycle management to be in-house and you need to balance your own books. But it's also important to have checks and balance. Routine, regular accounting work is easily outsourced to an accountant. 
and payroll that can be outsourced to really anybody. Those are relatively easy. You still have to have somebody on site that's going to manage personnel. You still need somebody who's reasonably savvy with HR. I do think that, you know, our group, we really benefit from an outside practice management group that oversees our books and that reviews it every month and runs an analysis. And the other advantage of that is that they're not just doing ENT. They can look at us and they can say, look, your AR is running 24 days. So we think you need to lean that up, try to get it down below three weeks. And they know how many full-time equivalents each provider should have and how much you should pay for them. When we hire an audiologist, you know, we don't do that in-house. We have our consultants say what an average audiologist should make and what sort of compensation models there are that seem to be most profitable. So I think it's good to have some things in-house, but also have outside consultants. It's also really, really important for anybody who's listening out there, private practice, really, really important to make sure that your staff is not stealing from you. That happens all the time. If you don't know a doctor in private practice who has had somebody steal from them, you just don't know many doctors. Happens all the time. So it's good to have an outside person that's auditing your books and looking over and reconciling the bank accounts every month. And I think that's all important. Drew, this next question's for you because one of the concerns that the younger partners in my practice had was the second bite. So you decide to sell to a private equity partner, but the way the private equity works is they collect a bunch of money from investors and after five to seven years, they want their investment back. So that's the cycle of these things. So after five to seven years, they're going to sell to a larger private equity firm, as you mentioned, mid cap. But how much control do you have over that sale? And if you were my age, 42, right, where you have 30 years left to practice, would that potential sale keep you awake at night? Because you really don't have any control. No, an individual physician, that wouldn't be up to any of us, really. Now, in our practice, we have a board and we have three other docs. So, there, so we have four physicians on the board. And so we do have some degree of influence on that. But you're right. Yes, it's a business. All right. This is a business that physicians aren't that familiar with in private equity. Indeed, it's a whole nother level of economics that we don't deal with. So the amount of money they talk about is things that we can't even contemplate really. But the advantage is that you as a young doc have the opportunity to be an owner in this type of a business that is very different from a medical practice and very limited people in, in our society that have the opportunity to have equity in these type of business structures. So if you look at the economics, I'm not going to get into the multiples, but you look at those numbers and you say to yourself, geez, this is uh, incredible. And we, you get an excellent buyout initially at that second exit occurs based on how well the organization does, how many practices are acquired and the track record speaks for itself. You can do extremely well and then continue to build from there, continue to practice medicine, continue to do well, but there's a huge value. There's a time value to money. You get a, just think if, if you got a, a great in equity event three years ago, invested in the stock market, where would it be today? Whereas if you're just working and working, it's hard to match that. Anyway, so that would be, yeah, it's a tremendous opportunity. Certainly nothing that anybody would have in a hospital owned employment situation or university or private practice doesn't offer that as well. No, no. Counting what Bill says, he's got a great private practice. It sounds like he's terrific. I'd go work for him. He sounds like a great guy and everybody's happy. It's fantastic. But many brags are not like that. It's, I have different partners and we all have 
triple A personalities and we didn't always agree on the same thing and we're in a competitive market. And so every practice is unique. It has its ups and downs. The only other comment I'll make when you join a private equity firm, there's objectivity. So if a young guy joins a private practice and you have a senior doc who particularly has leverage or control over that practice, uh, it's no longer the case. So it's a level playing ground in a professional managed company. So if I can paraphrase what you just said about the potential for financial gain and, and correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm 42. I get a significant amount of money up front that I can then invest in the market. And then five to seven years down the road, I've got my remaining investment that I can choose to sell or not. Some You can mm-hmm. often keep it in there for the next liquidity event. But now I've got a significant nest egg. So even if I'm unhappy with whoever it is I they sell to, I've got a good amount of money in the bank and therefore leverage to maybe move out of the area or if I'm able to sleep better at night because what would have taken me maybe another 10 years to make or more, I now have now. So that gives me leverage to stay or go if I choose. Correct. Yes. And okay. I think it's unlikely that the second acquisition company would really change the structure in any way, change your salary, change compensation. It's not really in anybody's interest. It's in all these companies' interest to to continue and invest in your own market in each practice and move further with acquisition. It's just that model is one that really our interests are aligned. They make money if you stay. They make less money if you leave because recruiting a physician, especially an otolaryngologist, because there aren't many of us, is very hard to do. I'm just a cynic. So I don't think they want to keep you happy. I think they want to keep you just not unhappy enough to leave, which I think is something very different. But that's not true necessarily. It's just how I think about someone well, who's in I mean, keeping you happy. It's not a practice, not someone who practices with right. me every day. So keeping the doc happy is what? Keeping us busy, keeping us seeing patients and full support. That's how doctors stay happy. Now, sure, if you are involved in a private practice and you love it and it's great, that's even better. But most of us out there, especially the younger docs, I think their goal is to take care of patients, get a lot of good support, join a practice that has a lot of strength behind it. Just be a good doc and be busy and have full support. I want to say I have a preference and then I have four points right there on my card. The preference, I'm going to say this, the process that my group went through was fairly simple. And with the group that we went the farthest down the road, and this is how we did it. We disclosed everything as honestly as we could. We opened our books for the company to come in and look at everything. We did nothing. We were as honest as we could. It happened to be during the middle of COVID, so we had plenty of time to go through this information. We gave everything to them, and we waited for them to all make us a proposal. They came and they made a presentation and gave us a proposal in writing. My partners and I would get it very simply. We took that proposal and gave it to our accountant, to our practice manager, and to our wealth management person. These are the people that their job is to, and to do financial analysis. And we have a group with a local investment company that does our ERISA, that do our retirement. They do everything. And we had them. We said, here's our books for the past five years. Here's the offer that we're looking at going into. Tell us from purely a financial standpoint, do we do it or not? They all said, don't do it. We didn't do it. It was real simple. If they had said, do it, we would already have been there. Now that has to do with this very, with the specifics of the buyout. And that's going to be individual to different groups. 
Drew doesn't know what I was offered. I'd have no idea what he was offered for his file. That's, that's the way it works. The offers we've been made, the people that made it, I'm not a financial guy. If I, if I invest in a stock, it's going to tank. So I have somebody out, hire professionals that do that for me. And they're very good at their job. And, and so we've had people that have done that for us. So that's how, that was a process that we made. And it just didn't make financial sense for us in the context that we were in. But let me just address the second bite. Let me just say that. Think a couple of things. The first caveat is, do you need to sell your grape? And that can be very individual. It can be because of local competition. It could be because the, the primary care base is being bought up by systems. It could be because the local hospitals are employing doctors and you're having pressure. And that's number one. Right now, we don't need to sell our group. The second thing is this, and, and this is one of the things that the financial guys said, and I Drew, I'd be interested in your perspective on this. But his point was this, you can only sell your practice once. Once you sell it, it's gone. You can't ever sell it again. Now, yes, the second bite, true, but I'm talking about my practice. East Alabama, ear, nose, and throat, PC, can only be sold one time. If this idea of private equity, ownership, bunching them together, forming a larger group and selling it to the second bite, if that's a successful business model, if that's one that is going to have long range wealth, if it's a good, successful business model, you know, one way you can look at it is it's easy to get, it's, it's better to get it early. But on the other hand, it may be that if it's valuable now, it may be even more valuable in the future because the, the supply is declining, not increasing. And so our thought on it is if it's, if the deal's good now, it's going to be better in the future because they're not making very many more practices like ours. And then my financial guy told us this, and again, Drew, I'm, I'm interested in your comments on this. He said, it was very simple. If you can afford to retire with your initial buyout, do it. If you can't, if you can't retire with the initial buyout, I'm not talking about the money you make in the subsequent years of employment or the second life. He said, if you can't retire with your initial buyout, do not do it. And obviously that's how, and again, this is just purely financial advice from our guy. And obviously that's going to be contextual, whether you're senior in your practice, if you have less than five years to practice, then it's a no brainer. It very much is. If you have 20 years to practice like I do, it may not be as good a deal. And then the last thing I'll say is this, the, the thing that made us finally decide not to sign on to, to sell our practice was the CEO of one of the companies, he and I were in a telephone conversation and we we're going back and forth about the value of our practice and about the cost opportunity of the investment. And he finally said to me these words, he said, it really depends on whether or not you buy into this idea of the second bite. Do you buy into it or not? Yes or no. And I told him. No, I buy into the value of my practice today. And that's the only thing. And I'm, and I'm, that's just me. I'm very conservative. I'm very fearful of the gamble of the future. Part of that is because we don't need to sell it right now. And because I probably do have 20 years to practice and I can only sell it once. So those were the decision-making processes and the reason behind that we decided not to. It could change tomorrow. If the company came back with the exact same contract with different numbers in it, that might be different. But for right now, that was our decision-making process. I'll just respond, respond to two of those. Yeah, Bill said, first of all, the price and the timing. Right? Is it better to sell early? Is it better to sell to wait and hold? Just like you said, I'm not a stock picker. <laughs> the other guys that we know probably better this. Who knows? I don't know the answer to that question. The supply of ENTs are going down. Is there, are the purchase price is going to go increasing and they're going to go down. 
I can't answer that question. That's too difficult to predict really. As far as the second bite and compensation moving forward. So we still, we're still compensated. We are compensated. Yeah, we don't, and moving forward, our, our income, our take-home pay is less than what we got before because you got the significant buyout, but it's still a good salary. It's still good. We're making better than the average otolaryngologist if you look at some of the data from MGMA, and that's true for all of us. So sure, you can, you don't have to just retire on just the buyout. You can still continue to work, do better. Probably most docs do in a hospital employment situation, but Yes, with the opportunity for equity and the second exit, just look at the trial. My advice would be look at the track record of the company that you're considering. Look at the, look at their experience. Look how many, or look how many businesses they brought to market and successfully exit. And that I think would give you the answer. And this is not, private equity is not going to go away. This is not just a, just a short one, two blip in the market. There's a ton of money being invested. We physicians, why this is an opportunity, you own something, why not take that opportunity to, to value that? I agree with that. Bill, if I can push back on, uh, on something you said just a little bit, you had said, if my practice is doing well now, why wouldn't I wait until there is a threat? Sure. That's not what you said, but I'm paraphrasing. Cause I think if you wait, we don't know the answer to two of these issues is we don't know what the future is going to bring. So. If there isn't a threat, right? If the hospital does start hiring otolaryngologists, now the value of your practice is worth less than what it is now. So then in, re in using your retrospectoscope, maybe you should have sold now, but we can't predict the future, so we don't know. And then with regards to the amount of money that that second bite makes, right? There's another issue we can't predict the future. Is it that all of these private equity firms are buying up ENT and other medical practices because money's cheap right now because interest rates are so low. So they're doing it because they can and eventually they become over leveraged and then they're going to collapse, right? Is that a positive? Can we invest in private equity on our own? I'm actually going to do a separate podcast with my listeners probably know Ryan Inman, who's a financial advisor who advises exclusively physicians. So we're going to be talking about other ways to invest. Can we invest our money in private equity? They're telling us that we can't, but He's going to tell us that there are ways to invest in them. Are we then non-diversified so that we've taken a significant amount of our practice, we've put it in someone else's private equity where we don't necessarily have so much control over it and our assets aren't diversified as they could have been. So I think there's both of these issues need to be considered when you're looking at the amount of money that they're willing to pay and what you consider might happen in the future. Totally agree with everything you said. And I, and I think that's the value of this type of podcast is to hear from different perspectives. Drew is a very bright, smart otolaryngologist and businessman. And he made it, made one decision and I made another. We, you know, you don't know. We do. We just don't know. We don't know what the value is going to be in the future. You're absolutely right. If UAB hires a bunch of otolaryngologists and come puts it in our hospital regionally, my practice is all of a sudden. Not worth very much. And I'm sure that there are a lot of those considerations. You just don't know what you don't know. Although I'll tell you, they're going to be hard pressed to find someone who's going to do a cochlear implant one day and a neck dissection the next. I've got cochlear implant and neck dissection tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> How did I know? Maybe I've heard you speak before. <laughs> I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Drew. Uh, and, and because I know that part of uh, the model that you guys have is it's heavily invested on you, each of the individual practice maintaining your identity and doing what you do well, continuing to do that. But here's an analogy that I've, I've given to other people that I don't know if it's fair or not. And that is this. If you look in any town, 
anywhere in the world. What are the best restaurants? Where do you really want to go? You want to go somewhere where there's a chef who owns his own restaurants and has put his heart and soul into everything from the menu to the napkins, to the flowers on the tables, to the entrees he's cooking. And he's poured his life into that. And I think that there's very few people that go to culinary school that their lifelong dream is to work for Applebee's. Okay. I'm not comparing you to practice Applebee's. Don't say that now. And there's nothing wrong with Applebee's. I'm from Alabama. We like Applebee's. But I do think that my father is, is, is a doctor, was a doctor, practicing doctor. He owned his own practice. And I take a lot of pride from our practice and it is us. And I, I hate to see that go away. I, I hate to see people go to get trained to go work for another entity, whether that's a hospital, an institution, or even a private equity firm. I have a bunch of friends that are dentists, and I always hate to see them go work for Aspen Dental. I'm sure that it's perfectly fine. I'm sure that it's perfectly fine that they take good care of people. My best friends have their own practice with their name on the door. And my best friend is a veterinarian, and he still has South College Vet just right down the street. My dogs are right now. And he takes a lot of pride in his practice. And I think you lose something when you sell out the band field and work in Petco. And I'm not saying you work in Petco, Drew. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I think that I have this fear, perhaps, of becoming the chef that works for works for Bonefish Grill and doesn't own my own, own restaurant, or that I'm the dentist that works for Aspen Dental, or I'm the veterinarian that works for Benfield. I think I have a fear. I want to maintain the ownership of my practice that I have a tremendous amount of pride in. I hear you, Bill. Absolutely, yes. And private practice is certainly a wonderful world. If you get a nice situation, you got good partners. It's certainly, that's what we all knew when we first became docs. Absolutely. As far as my experience, I can, that's what I'll just say. It hasn't changed at all. It's still our practice, still my name. There's nobody else's name on the door. Our PE firm has, I think, one logo at the bottom of one piece of paper. There really is no change. Our referral docs don't know any difference. Our patients certainly have no clue whatever business support. So I look at really as management company that's providing business support. They have really, they don't tell you how to practice medicine. I'm sure you've heard that before, but it does, it is true. We do what we do and sure that they actually help us. One of my docs, he started to do radio frequency, the ablation of thyroid nodules. And that was a high tech piece of equipment that the company purchased and he's doing well. And another affiliated practice, they brought in in-house anesthesia to do some of these in-office procedures. And so they invested in that. So yeah, they, you know, they can invest in some ancillaries. Look at our, look at our field. It's a lot of high tech, a lot of equipment. And I'm sure you'll probably say, geez, do I really need that other tower, that image guided system or what it is. And you just show a pro forma to the company and they've never hesitated to invest. So no, you maintain your personality. There's no difference in the identity, the practice, your referral docs to your patients. It just gives you more support. Are you concerned about legacy? Because there is going to be that next liquidity event and next liquidity event. So eventually it might not be as it is right now. And we've got residents coming out and medical students who are going to become residents. So the field of otolaryngology. Private equity is all about building for the future, investing in these practices. And they want these practices to, to do well down the road. So I would argue the opposite. You join a, a practice like ours, you have a massive amount of support to maintain that legacy, that identity, and that market strength of that practice versus going one other fell in practice somewhere and he retires and something changes and the practice dissolves. So if anything, I think uh, a partner like we have increases the um, 
strength of the uh, long-term practice itself. One one of my partners, and I'm not sure, I think he was listening to the podcast, maybe he still is, AJ Chitkara. He's a laryngologist closer to the Hamptons than I am on Long Island. And he was originally in practice with his dad. It was just the two of them. And then there was, they saw that as not a viable way to practice. So they joined with a larger group, seven or eight of them. This is very common on Long Island, let alone the New York metro area, just to give people an idea of how big this, the area and how many otolaryngologists there are. So he joined with them. And then eventually they saw the writing on the wall and joined ENT and Allergy, which currently has 160 partners, I think maybe 170 now, 220 physicians total. So each step of the way, there was a loss of control and a loss of their individual identity to become part of something larger, which was a, a hedge against the future. So to what you're saying, a private equity is just the next iteration of that. You're not really losing, you're just evolving. You could look at that, but your analogy, you said that smaller group merged with a seven-man group, probably changed the name, and then that group changed their name to become ENT and Allergy. In the model we're in, each practice maintains its individual identity. So it's a loose affiliation really for support services, but we have, frankly, we have another group that um, joined our organization and they're just down the street, they're right downtown from one of our main offices in Atlanta and they have five docs and they've been now with us over a year and we never really see them. We don't interact. We don't, we're still somewhat competitive actually, but we're under the same, same organization umbrella, but they have their name. We have our name. And our paths are not crossing. I can tell you that much. Do you share an EMR with them? No. No. We do not. Interesting. I think that's also an interesting discussion. I'm actually on a Zoom calls tomorrow night with with the people looking at uh, CINs and, and ACOs. And I think that's one thing that we've been looking at in Alabama, to be perfectly honest with you. In Alabama, there's seven regional uh, hospitals. And each of those cities have one or two major groups. And our question, is there a way that we can form a group either under one tax ID number or not, or form a CIN or HCO where we can have the advantages of scale, have the advantages of regional, regional penetrance for the entire state, or we can have the power to negotiate contracts, but still allow each practice to maintain full financial independence. And that's something that's very complicated to arrange. It's also very hard to herd cats. And really that m- most of the models that have done that successfully have had a big anchor group that has been at the center of that, that's been able to have the resources and manpower to, to make that happen. But I'm very interested in it. And so I think that's another question that our, our listeners need to be aware of is that there may be something other than hospital employment or selling your practice, that might be some way that we can regionally or, or nationally even join together to get some of the advantages of the economies of scale. Economies of scale and better contracts, because the more leverage you have, the more you can get from them. That's how the hospitals do it. I've got three-man group in, just look at my group, we have zero leverage. You can't negotiate with the only leverage we have is that we're the only provider. And that's a lot of leverage, especially like for, for Medicaid, because Medicaid has to provide it at whatever reimbursement people will provide the service for. And when you have no competition with the only providers, it gives you some leverage. But going to Blue Cross or Humana or Aetna or United Healthcare, just zero leverage if you're a small group. Really, you can't just stop taking. You can to your own peril. 
but then the patients have nowhere to go. So then they're going to, wouldn't they raise hell with the insurer until they started, you started taking them again? It's a tricky road to go down. That's for sure. Ethically, uh, challenge. I think that you're, there are definitely some advantage. I think I want to be very honest about that. There are definitely advantages of some big groups and there's definitely advantages of the organization that Drew's joined, one of which is definitely contract negotiations, unquestionably. And then maintaining a referral base. We're all going to have to, hospitals and systems don't have to purchase you nor your competition. They only have to purchase your referring doctors. And it's a lot more cost-effective for them to buy 10 family practice doctors than it is to buy two ENT doctors and all that we bring with it. And if they cut off your referrals, you're out of business. So uh, that's all, it's all important. And, and I, I can see where a larger group would be advantageous in that setting. Drew, any final thoughts? Final thoughts. Interesting model. The world is changing, right? We see tremendous amount of change in and all, look, just look around in the past several years, COVID and all the implications, advice to other practices, new docs, just take a look at different options out there and see what the pros and cons are. Keep your eyes open, do your diligence and make good decisions. The only thing I would say is what I say every time, that is the ENT is the best specialty in medicine and we have the best people. And I, I think that there's a lot of different options. And for the young people, focus on taking good care of your patients. And you'll make more money than you deserve, no matter what model you go into. And I wish you guys both the best of luck. And I really appreciate that. It was a pleasure meeting both of you. And I appreciate your time. Thank you. Pleasure to meet you. And good evening. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.